Hi, welcome to The Kicker. I'm Kyle Pope, editor and publisher of the Columbia Journalism Review. This week, the coverage of the Ghislaine Maxwell trial and in general, the coverage of sexual abuse victims. At the end of December, as everybody knows, Ghislaine Maxwell was convicted of five federal sex trafficking charges um, after a jury in New York concluded that she played a pivotal part in recruiting and grooming teenage girls to be sexually abused by Jeffrey Epstein. Maxwell was found guilty of five of the six federal counts she was charged with and faces up to 65 years in prison. A sentencing hearing has not yet been held. The trial and the way it was conducted raised all kinds of important questions for journalists about how sexual assault victims are treated in the justice system by lawyers, by their own jury. And all of this is now being discussed in light of this very high profile trial. I'm really pleased to be joined today by two journalists who have followed this closer than anybody. Julie K. Brown is an investigative reporter with the Miami Herald, who is the reporter who first brought Jeffrey Epstein's crimes to light. Her work includes the Herald's 2018 series, examining how he managed to arrange secret plea deal and escape life in prison, even though he was suspected of sexually abusing more than 100 underage girls and young women. Lucia Osborne Crowley is a London-based journalist, a lawyer, and a reporter for Law 360. She's covered the Maxwell trial for a forthcoming book and documentary, and she's the author of My Body Keeps Your Secrets, which tells the story of a young woman's body in the age of social media. Julie and Lucia, thank you so much for being here. Thanks for having us. Thank you so much for having us. It's such a pleasure. It's a real honor to be here with both of you. Before we get into to the core of this question. Just give me your sense. We, we were talking before we started recording this conversation just about what it was like covering this trial in New York and how, how, how hard it was and how hard it was, especially for a journalist doing this. Julie, give me a sense of, of what it was like sort of day to day covering, covering this in lower Manhattan. Well, I've covered, you know, I've been doing this for 30 plus years, and I've covered many, many trials, both in state courts and federal courts, including federal courts in New York. And I have to say, this is probably the worst experience I've ever had in my career covering a trial. Uh, I just think, you know, it was complicated in part by the fact that we were in the throes of COVID. I think that that aggravated the situation. But beyond that, I think that this there was this um, unnecessary chaos, uh, given the fact that this trial had been planned for so long. Uh, I think that everything was completely unorganized, especially in the beginning for the for the few first few weeks of the trial, and that uh, nobody knew where to go, even the. Um, you know, people running the courthouse didn't know where to tell people to go. We were told one thing one day, another thing another day. So it was, as I said, it was probably my worst experience covering a case uh, in my 30 plus years of journalism. Lucio, what, what did you make of it? Yeah, well, I completely agree with Julie. I mean, I was really, I was genuinely very, very shocked by this. Um it, it was a really difficult experience covering this trial. I, f- I feel like 
there was a lot of ways in which the the court made it quite inhospitable for reporters um and i and i feel like that attitude was made quite obvious to us um in a way that i found quite difficult to deal with and i have nowhere near as much experience as julie um but i cover courts in london um as a reporter and you know the difference is night and day and here you know I'm very much welcomed into the court and they make space for me and I have my phone and my laptop and I file stories from the courtroom uh, with all the same rules applying as as in other courts where you know I can't record anything and I can't take pictures uh, under the penalty of contempt of court but I'm still trusted to have my devices in there and I can file stories from in there and um it's a it's a kind of welcoming environment and this covering this trial was was nothing like that i mean we had to wait outside in the cold the earliest i got there one day was two o'clock in the morning um to wait outside until eight o'clock when they let us in the courtroom um so it was you know if nothing else honestly it was a it was a physical test i and i have a disability and physically it was very very hard on me to kind of to do four weeks of this and as I said, I genuinely found that quite surprising. You know, I think we often talk about being committed to principles of open justice and, you know, the fact that we value what reporters add to our system by by covering how justice is administered. And while that was technically the case here, in practice, it was made very hard for us. And, you know, I think that's a real problem. Who was calling the shots on those kind of details? Um was it the 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 facilities people at um the courthouse at the federal courthouse or was it the SDNY people? do you know who who was making these decisions well the problem that happened i think is that nobody took responsibility for handling this no one entity uh when we would call you know the court administrator um he would say, well, I have nothing to do with it. It's the U.S. Attorney's Office. Then you call the U.S. Attorney's Office and they would say, we have nothing to do with it. It's the court administrator's office. Uh, at one point, I think some people contacted the judge and the judge referred again to the court administrator's office. So it was being paddled around. And I think that that was part of the problem, that there was so much chaos. And basically what I, I realized was you know, if we're having such a hard time, I wonder how these victims are dealing with it. And that, that's when it occurred to me that it was time to really take a look at how the system was really treating the victims. Uh, they, they showed up on the first couple of days. Some of them had, had complained uh, about the way that they were forced to wait in line like cattle. Uh, and going through that rigorous, I mean, they've been through so much and this was their time for justice and for them, uh, as you can imagine, for them to be treated in this way was very demoralizing. Yeah. In fact, Julie, you wrote a story about um, um, these victims who were, who were basically out in the cold, literally waiting um, to get in. Um, and uh, you, you tweeted, um, I think at the time that the, New York federal court system and the Southern district must rethink how they treat victims. Um, and at one point you, you, you witnessed um, some court officials screaming at, at one of the people. Tell us, tell us about that. 
Well, you know, I had written about this woman. I had noticed her in the courtroom coming in very quietly every day. And I, you know, you're there for a long time. You know, you sort of get to know the people that are there. And um, I started chatting with her. And here I had spoken with her on the phone before. I hadn't remembered this. She had called me before to talk about her story about being the victim. And she here it turns out she was taking a Greyhound. She lives in Philadelphia. She was getting up at, um, you know, three o'clock in the morning, taking the Greyhound bus from, and it's quite cold, you know, it's freezing temperatures, sleeting at times, very windy, bitter. And she's taking a Greyhound bus from, you know, Philadelphia into New York, then taking the subway to the courthouse, then waiting in line outside with the rest of everybody else hoping she's going to get a seat in the main courtroom. And uh, I just found her story very compelling. She was, um, you know, told me her story about being abused by both um, Maxwell and Epstein. And the fact that she felt she was, in a sense, being re-traumatized and and treated poorly, uh, once again, by the criminal justice system that had as as pretty much everyone knows by now, had betrayed these victims from the very beginning. Yeah, I mean, and this sort of is is a segue into into the core of, the, of what I wanted to talk about, which is this whole series of ways in which um, these victims were either um, were, were 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 mistreated, as in the case of of this woman sitting out in the cold, and when the there was the there was the actual when the verdict was read, the family of Ghislaine Maxwell was allowed in the courtroom, and victims were not. Um, there was cross examination of victims by defense attorneys that was particularly aggressive. I mean, one you know using air quotes when questioning people about their stories. Um, and I'm just curious, Julie, like whether whether this whether this was all in your experience, sort of the way that things work or whether it was particularly egregious in this trial? Well, from my experience, it was particularly egregious in this trial. Uh, I think that there was really no reason um, that the um, U.S. Attorney's Office in New York couldn't have taken um, a handle on this and realized that there should have been some kind of accommodation for the victims. Uh, this the. I was told basically that, um, and and these victims were told, you're not victims. They're not victims. And I kept saying, what are you talking about? That doesn't make any sense. And finally, you know, after days of questioning and them not really answering the questions that I was posing to them, they finally said, well, they're not the four victims in this case. So Mm -hmm. the only people that were entitled to be in the actual courtroom itself were these four women who were part of the case. Now, these four women never came back to the courtroom to sit in the, in the gal- gallery. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, they were, you know, aggressively questioned. They were in tears when they left. Um, one of them lived in California. Another lives in, I think, I think two of them live in California. They don't even live local. They're not going to sit there in the courtroom right behind um, Maxwell's family, who, by the way, were ushered into the courtroom, every allowed to take a side door, ushered into the courtroom every day, allowed to move around, even talk with Elaine. And, um, you know, so there was no victims essentially in the courtroom. Now, the court administrator and the uh, 
U.S. Attorney's Office said we had these overflow courtrooms. And so they were allowed to go into the, everybody was allowed to go if you can't get into the main courtroom, which had very limited seating because of COVID um, distancing uh, rules. Um, they were allowed to go into one of the overflow courtrooms. But there were no provisions for the victims to have maybe their own overflow courtroom. In other words, they're being thrown in there with every, you know, member of the public. You have, you know, people who are, you know, even quite frankly crazy people sometimes coming into these trials. They're just curious people, and sometimes they're a little off kilter. And, uh, you know, there was no provisions for them to even have a place where all of them could possibly go and support each other. And so they, you know, not only were they shut out of the main courtroom, even though there, there could have been a seat or two for the few victims that showed up, um, they, were, they were treated as if they were just basically um, cattle in some ways, I felt. Lucia, you have experience covering trials outside of the U.S. Um, I don't know how much you've paid attention to U.S. sexual assault trials, but I mean, what was, what was your perception of the treatment of the victims here? Yeah, well, in, you know, I, I was very, very shocked by the way the court and the U.S. Attorney's Office treated these victims, especially because, as Julie said, you know, this government and different branches of this government have let these women down again and again and again for 25 years now. And this was the one time that, that they were able to bring someone forward and hold someone accountable for these crimes. And, you know, it is so disappointing to me that even though they finally managed to make this happen after decades of doing nothing, and they still managed to undermine that experience for these victims. And I think, you know, undermine not might not even be a strong enough word because, you know, I saw a one of the court officials raise his voice at this victim and say to her, in my mind, you're not a victim, you know, to her face while while she was in tears. And, you know, that is traumatising. Um, and, you know, to treat an, uh, a traumatised person in that way who has come a long way to watch this trial is really, to my mind, unforgivable and also inexplicable. I can't think of a single reason to why this happened or to justify, you know, why the victims were treated in this way. Um, and again, as Julie said, it, it would have been easy for the court and the government and the administrative system to come up with a way to ensure that these victims had a place in that courtroom, were safe, were together, um, and were able to support each other. Uh, and none of that was done. So, for example, you know, there was one day that where there was a victim sitting near me in the courtroom and there were two reporters sitting right near her and they were making jokes about things that Maxwell had done with each other. And, it, you know, it was real locker room talk and it was not, not I mean that in the quote, quote, locker room talk yeah. that we kind of know it, you know. Um, and it was awful. It was awful. And, you know, I hated the fact that she had to hear that, that she had to hear those jokes being made about some of the worst things that had ever happened to her. And, you know, it didn't have to be like that. And I've spoken to two victims who had an absolutely horrible experience of this trial. Um, and I, you know, I just think that's a real problem. And the same goes for the way they were treated by 
the defence lawyers and, you know, people say that defence lawyers are doing their job and they have to do this. But I don't think that's true also because because the tone of this was different to what I've seen before. It was more aggressive. Um, the air quotes example is a perfect example. And there were so many of them. You know, I was reviewing my notes yesterday and there were so many moments where where defence attorneys and one of them in particular were really vicious towards these victims that, you know, they just kept stacking up as I was going through the transcripts and the notes. And again, you know, I can't think of a single reason why it had to be that way. And, you know, I just think that's so disappointing when it's taken so much to get here. Yeah, I think we all have to acknowledge that we wouldn't even be here if it wasn't for Julie Brown, I don't think. Exactly. Um, Well, well, that's, you know, brings up another point. I mean, I couldn't get credentials for this trial. Um, And I almost didn't come to cover it because I, you know, my editors were saying, well, what's the point really of you going if you can't even really get in the courtroom? Um, the, The rules in the Southern District of New York for obtaining credentials to cover a trial are are archaic, really. They Mm. really are. In this day and age, when there's so much limited resources for, um, you know, newspapers and media outlets, I I think they need to rethink um, not only the way that they credential people, but also this idea that there's somehow, um, you know, that they can't bring in any kind of, you know, not recording devices, but devices like phones or, uh, you know, here, the, the credentials, credentialed reporters who are based in New York have all their phones. They're in the courtroom. They're texting. They're looking things up on the Internet. Uh, lawyers are allowed in, and they're using their phones. But yet anybody who comes from anywhere else isn't permitted to do that and has to go through um, you know, security every single time, turn in their phone. If something happens, you have to run out, throw your coat on, Um, dictate something. Uh, If you're lucky, you can get back in right away. If you're not, you're going to have to wait in line again. I mean, it was just the way that it was done. And it doesn't matter how many times you did it. If you did it six times a day, you had to go through the same thing, take your shoes off, take your scarf off. I mean, they were going through the women's purses. I I I had a lipstick in my purse that I had in every single day, and it had a weird top on it. And I swear to God, every single time I went through that thing, um, they had to open my purse. They had to look at it. And it, some of these guys were the same guys. I mean, they mm-hmm. knew what they were doing. They were, it, you, you just had to think that this was something they were almost enjoying, giving the media a hard time every single time. Absolutely. You know, it was crazy. Um, let me ask you both to put on your kind of uh, media critic hat. <laughs> um, I mean, Going back to the point of how dreadful the uh, victims were treated throughout here, even even relative to other trials. Um, I mean, I'm aware of this from reading your work, and because our producer Amanda Darrow went to the trial and wrote a terrific piece for CJR about it and raised some of these issues. Um, but I got to say, the general tone of the coverage of this trial did not really hammer this these points home. Maybe you disagree with that. Maybe I'm not seeing stories that did, but I'm curious why you think that is. Well, I, you know, think about the way that this case has been covered from, you know, 15 years ago. This has been the problem with the case from the very beginning. 
Um, I think that a lot of media missed the real story here in that um, this cr the criminal justice system and how it treats victims, how it treats really, well, we're, we're not even talking about victims necessarily, how it treats just the general public. Yeah. You know, they work for the public and just the way that they are, it, the lawyers are very chummy with each other. The, the, the judges are very um, chummy with the lawyers. It's like this inside club. And I think that it's just too incestuous and it doesn't recognize the fact that we need to um, have more transparency for one thing. And I, I think also the media, unfortunately, um, you know, when it becomes your beat um, on a regular basis, you don't want to rock the boat. Mm -hmm. You don't want to criticize the people that you're getting your stories from. And I think that that was part of the problem here. I think um, the court administrator in this particular court system was extremely aggressive and, um, you know, it, it, I've never seen anything like it. I mean, he was screaming and yelling at people for things that were really unnecessary all the time. And I think that a lot of the um, media didn't want to rock the boat because they feared. I mean, I was afraid they were going to, th he threatened to throw me out of the courtroom one time because I wanted to go up. I wanted to ask him about why he wasn't letting, or why there wasn't a seat in the courtroom for a victim. And he started screaming for security because I had walked over to the well, which where he was standing to ask him a question. I said, look, I just want to ask you a question. And he's screaming security. And um, I thought he might throw me out of the courtroom. And I think his aggressiveness, I'm sure a lot of reporters um, felt like they needed to stand down or, or for fear that maybe perhaps um, there would be consequences. What do you, uh, Lucia, why do you think the, there wasn't more of a focus on the treatment of the victims in the coverage? Yeah, well, I think um, that this is a really good point, the point that Julie just made, which is that, you know, the people who were in charge, who really let us know that they were the ones who were in charge, were very aggressive and at times threatening. And so, you know, I think if their plan was to intimidate um, a, a lot of reporters out of um, reporting on certain aspects of the trial, it, it probably worked. And I think people probably did stand down mm. for that reason, because we were treated as if, you know, we should feel lucky that we were being given access uh, to this realm um, of which, you know, and of course we had a right to be there, but that's not how we were being treated. Mm. Um, so I think it's partly that. I also think, you know, it comes down to um, the fact that reporters like Julie weren't given priority to be in that room. Reporters who've covered this story from the beginning, who are the reason we are here, who've been telling victim stories and doing really difficult trauma-informed reporting for decades, weren't given access to the courtroom. And then other reporters who, you know, have just come onto this story were given priority. Um, and and you can see from the coverage, and, and Kyle, you know, I have to agree with you, a lot of the coverage didn't reflect at all what I was seeing and hearing and feeling in that room. And, you know, I think a lot of the reporters, their, their priorities was to, were, were to kind of bring out 
the most sensationalist or clickbaity things that happened every day. And, you know, I think Amanda's piece did a really good job of looking at looking at the words that were used in each piece, you know, things like the big names that came out or Annie Farmer's boots, you know, the amount of reporting on Annie Farmer's boots, which just reflected exactly what the defence wanted to be reflected, which is that the boots were a really big deal. Um, but, uh, you know, more trauma-informed reporting uh, wouldn't, wouldn't give so much airtime to the way the defence kind of aggressively questioned Annie about those boots. And I think that's just a really good kind of narrow example of, of how some of the coverage, I think, missed the important stories. And, and the important stories were the people who were sitting in the room with us who, who you know, had, had to fight tooth and nail, these victims who had to fight tooth and nail to even get in there, and then, you know, the story is the days we didn't see them because they couldn't get in at all. Um, and, you know, I think it, you know, it did strike me reading a lot of the coverage that it, 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 diver- it diverged from, from my experience of the trial. And the exception, of course, to that is, is reporters like Julie, who did tell the story of, of the victim who was out in the cold and, and who wrote about her experience but you know a lot of people weren't weren't focused on that and I think that's a real shame so finally um I mean I'm wondering whether you know Lucia had a terrific interview with um a member of the jurors um who talked about um why he believed um the women who testified as well as his own experience of sexual abuse and um, what, a couple of things really stood out there. One is that all of the stuff that we've been talking about, about how horribly the lawyers treated the victims, in his mind, backfired, it seemed to me. Yes. Like, he was yeah. basically saying, like, yeah, what they did that, but it, I didn't, it, it, not only did it turn me off, but it sort of, it, it almost like drew him closer to the victims on the stand. And I got to think that. Yes. You know, it, even if you just approached it, forget the sort of human part of this. If you just approached it as like, what's the most effective way to get what you want in the courtroom? It seems like these lawyers are not taking the tack that's working. Yeah, and you know, I thought that so often during this trial. You know, especially in moments when victims were being cross-examined in this really aggressive and sometimes snarky and yeah, just yeah. just downright nasty manner. You know, yeah. in, in in a way that you know talking to people in that tone I don't think is ever appropriate and the fact that these victims were being spoken to in that nasty way was so shocking to me as you say Kyle on a human level but it did keep occurring to me that that I wasn't I didn't think it was a good strategic move either and Uh, and let me if I can just interrupt uh, it's not the important thing also to remember I'm sorry to interrupt but I these women, I don't think there was any dispute that they were abused by Jeffrey Epstein. Right. Okay. There was never a dispute about that. Right. So for them to treat these victims like this, like they were horrible human beings, when they were clearly victims, if you can argue that they weren't victims of Maxwell, but they were definitely victims. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's what's mm-hmm. so uh, shocking to me that the, the prosecutors didn't get the memo on. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> Because they, they, they're, it seemed to me that their job was to do something else, which was to was to tie Maxwell to this, not to relitigate whether these women were victimized. But 
Absolutely. Um, you know, one of the things that's one of the, uh, Lucia, I'm, I'm curious whether you anticipated when you did this piece about the jury, juror who, who talked about his own experience of sexual abuse and how, and, and, and according to your story, he was, he, he, he shared these very difficult personal details with his, the rest of his jury jurors to, to help to, you know, to sort of tell them how he saw it. And he helped them understand, you know, why, you know, why people may have been delayed in coming forward and all these issues. Um, but anyway, so, so now um, this is, now this has kicked up a debate about whether people who have been abused themselves can be independent jurors. I think, I think it's a, it's a silly discussion. I mean, to me, um, but it is being, people are talking about it being used in, in an appeal. Did you anticipate that, that that debate would be kicked up by his comments? Well, I mean, in in one way, yes, and in one way, no. I mean, he and I had a conversation about this, um, you know, about what the repercussions might be. And, you know, there, there's two issues. One is um, what he put on his juror questionnaire. And in, in my mind, that's more complicated than it, it seems to be in the minds of lots of other people anyway. But so, you know, that's one thing. And we talked a lot about that. Uh, because and and you know his best memory was that that he filled in those forms honestly, um, but we still had that discussion. The second issue, which seems to be kind of dominating the discussion, and which I think is really important to talk about, is this idea that so many people seem to have that a sexual abuse victim would automatically uh, be excluded from a jury in this case, and that that is right. And, you know, I think we really need to interrogate that because that's a really problematic position to take, um, both legally and ethically. And the amount, the kind of wave of opinions that I've heard that, you know, that people with this experience should never be allowed on these juries is quite surprising to me. And, you know, I actually just, you know, before I logged on here, I got off the phone with a jury expert for for my follow up story about this exact question, and the truth is that you know there is no way that we should be excluding all sexual abuse victims from juries of sexual abuse trials um, because that would completely skew a jury. So that question, so taking the Maxwell trial, that questionnaire said, "Have you ever been sexually assaulted, abused, or harassed?" That's a very broad question. And I looked at reports of, you know, people who'd been asked essentially that same question in studies. 81% of women answered that question, yes. Yeah. And 43% of men. So think about who you're left with if you take out those huge chunks of the population that answer yes to that question. And if you are saying that people with a past experience of abuse have an incurable bias, mm-hmm. um, you know, you're saying something really alarming about about those people. Uh, and I think we really, really need to interrogate that assumption because you're saying that, that people who've been subjected to a certain experience over which they had no control uh, now have to be excluded because they have this bias that, that they couldn't possibly set aside. And I think what we need to think about is if we are saying that we want to exclude those people, 
we need to think about the consequence of that. And the consequence of that is a different kind of bias. The consequence of that is only having juries made up of people who've never, ever been touched by this issue. And that means you're going to have juries that look a lot more like the perpetrators of abuse mm -hmm. than the victims of abuse. And that, and that is, that is, you know, biased and, and, you know, that is also a problem. So, you know, I think, I think it's something we really need to look at. I mean, I don't know. I'd love to hear your thoughts, Julie. Well, before, but, I mean, I, I want to hear Julie too, but it does, I mean, I, I, it just seems so absurd because um, it, it creates a special class of victim for sexual assault. Um, yes. abuse victims because if you are in a trial and, and you are asked have you ever been the victim of a crime and you say yes right. you are not excluded from the jury right. even if you're right. a victim of a crime that is related to what's on the panel um, right. so what, what they're talking about doing it what, what you're saying is like people are talking about like carving out a special category of victimhood mm -hmm. Julie what are your thoughts on this well you know I also it occurs to me that um you know, just from some of the experts, you know, when I worked on this story from the very beginning, I talked to a lot of experts about victims of sexual abuse and how you speak to them and how they react. And, and we were concerned from the beginning about re-traumatizing these women. And what, among the, um, I think, important things that I learned was that uh, victims tend to have certain, um, in other words, they do tend to forget details. They do tend to, to mix up certain things over time. And if you have a victim, for example, that remembers everything exactly, then that's a problematic victim because you don't remember things exactly. So my, I, I would expect that having someone on a jury that understands how uh, you are traumatized is an, um, also important to recognize the victims that really are not genuine victims. I think mm -hmm. that they're also capable of recognizing this person really wasn't telling the truth. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, so I also think it's important in that respect. You know, in Lu Lucia's story, um, she quotes this juror who, who goes by his first and middle name, Scotty Davis. Um, he makes he, he basically says, like, look, um, the quote was, we're not here to judge the, these victims. We're here to judge whether we believe their stories, which is the point mm -hmm. that Julie just made. Um, mm -hmm. We're not here to judge the decisions they made or didn't make. Um, Lucia, you're going to say something else on this? Yeah, well, I just um, to, to Julie's point about um, victims on a jury being able to recognize, you know, stories that are perhaps you know that don't gel with their own experience and then are um, perhaps more likely to not be truthful that goes to this point that I have been thinking and thinking about and turning over in my head the last few days and speaking to, to jury experts about which is that you know what do we mean when we think about bias and if we are saying that that knowledge that a personal experience is the same as bias you know then that really conflates two concepts that I think are very different because personal knowledge of something can actually make you more empowered to identify, you know, the truth from things that are less truthful, the truth from lies, or it can help you assess evidence. Um, and your own knowledge of how traumatic memory works can help you forensically assess, you know, other people's recollections of their traumatic memories and and that is 
that should be something that we want on juries rather than assuming that knowledge equals bias and that if you know about something all you can do with that knowledge is immediately you know be on one side of a certain case I think that's 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 a problem if we assume that it's a very dangerous precedent because you know you get into questions of race in juries uh, mm-hmm. how that affects uh, people so you know um, anyway that's fascinating and I look forward Lucia, to seeing your ongoing reporting on this thank you both so much for coming on thank you very thank much you. for having us thank you that was that was really really lovely thanks mm-hmm. for having us this is in a really important conversation and I encourage everybody to follow Julia and Lucia's work as well as to read Amanda's piece on CJR about what it was like uh, for journalists to cover the Maxwell trial. You can read our ongoing coverage of these issues at cgr.org, on our social media, and in our daily email newsletter, The Media Today. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next week.